Welcome to our finale of season two of Access and Opportunity. In this episode, we will uncover with our guest James Ree transparency, trust, and transformation. James is the chairman and CEO of Ashley Stewart and the founder of Firepine Group. He transformed the twice-bankrupt, nearly-liquidated, plus-size women's retailer Ashley Stewart into a high-impact social brand with 89 neighborhood stores, an explosive online presence, and an influential media arm. James has worn many hats throughout his career, from high school teacher to entrepreneur and institutional investor. And today, we'll hear how his impressive journey helped him to become the inspiring leader he is today. Come on and join me for the ride. So James, finally, we're here together. So let's start first with James the Entrepreneur. I just think the name of your company, Firepine, is a story in itself. So let's start there and say, how did you decide that you wanted to have your own company? How did you decide to structure it? Tell us a little bit about the name. Uh, where did you come up with that? And what does it mean and why? So I've spent a lot of years learning about money and how to move money. And I didn't grow up knowing this. My parents didn't. I don't know if my dad owned a stock till he was 50-something years old. We didn't. This wasn't at the dinner table. So I learned a lot. And I wanted to have my own firm where uh, I got to pick whose money I invested and that they understood that to build long-term value that you had to do certain things a certain way. And to do that with companies, you generally have to control the capital. What gave you the confidence that you were going to be able to raise a fund uh, based on your terms, i.e., I wanted to manage the money that I wanted to manage? I have never heard a GP uh, who raised a fund say that because usually it is a challenge to go out and raise the capital. I'm more interested in making investments than managing a fund that makes the investments. Mm -hmm. So I sought out opportunities that were great opportunities. And I knew from my track record and my relationship base that I would be able to attract the right type of capital. And I've never lived my life trying to make a lot of money. I have not valued uh, my life on how much wealth I've created for myself. I've consistently made decisions that were, frankly, anti that. But in some instances, it's been rewarded with money. Yes. And I'm not naive about money. Money mm -hmm. is important. But money is also the bane of a lot of existences. I have a lot of friends who've made a lot of money who are incredibly unhappy. And mm -hmm. I just don't live my life like that. Mm -hmm. That's not the way my parents raised me. Yes. So let's talk a little bit about that journey from how you grew up, where you grew up, to actually private equity, because you said I had an interest in it. I didn't necessarily get in it in order to make money, but I got into it because I wanted to understand what this thing was all about. What's the playbook? How did you get exposed to it? And then how did you methodically put yourself in a position where you could get a role in a private equity firm to learn, to yes. create this reputation that then enabled you to go out and raise your own fund based on the uh, the reputation you had created working in one of the other firms? I've always just been a voracious learner. Okay. I'm an entrepreneur in life, just learning things. I grew up very naively, public school kid, first gen. My parents uh, bought a menorah. They didn't know. It's, it's both beautiful and sad. Yeah. They just didn't know. Yeah. You know, when I showed up at Harvard, uh, you know, I don't know how you felt, but I, I was, wow, I'm like, there's a lot I don't know. Yeah, and, sure. Um, I, I was the same way. I was pretty naive, and I think I was 18 temporally, but maybe I was 10 in sophistication about how things work. And mm -hmm. 
I kind of stumbled into this because if you think about the path, I like learning things and then teaching. Okay. So I went to college. Mm-hmm. Harvard was awesome. And then I went and taught sort of underachieving kids and said, you should go to college too. It's awesome. Then mm-hmm. I went to law school to be a public defender. And then I'm like, well, but money is important. So how does that work? And so I bullied my way into uh, HBS recruiting. I was the first non-traditional hire, I think, the M&A group at Merrill Lynch ever made. Ah, okay. And this was uh, 1998. And the very next year, I asked for $1,000. And I two of the eight M&A associates uh, were from Harvard Law School the next year. Okay. So I've always wanted to break, learn, yes. deconstruct, make it teachable, mm-hmm. and then teach it back to other people that necessarily aren't on the, quote, path. Mm-hmm. And show them that this is actually learnable and mm-hmm. this is how you learn it. And then convince the pe- hiring people and say, why wouldn't you hire this person? This person is the best athlete. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I moved up to Boston and somehow muscled my way into what was then one of the largest private equity firms in Boston. Um, they don't know why they hired me. Yeah. They were saying, but we think that you have promise. Uh-huh. I've taken a lot of risk in my career, but I like to distinguish as an investor between actual risk and perceived risk. Oh, right? oh can, you, can you expound? So for someone hiring me, the perceived risk is that you're a high school teacher, a law student. We don't know what to make of this. But for someone who actually takes the time to learn about a, my track record, who I am, what I've accomplished, what I've, the consistency of the track record, maybe it's not such a high risk at all. Uh-huh. That's how I invest money. When people say there's a lot of risk, I say, well, okay, I'm glad you think that. I don't think there's a lot of risk. Mm -hmm. And it allows me to deliver outsized returns for myself, my investors, and the employees for which the companies I invest in. And that is the genesis of Firepine Group. Mm -hmm. And my wife came up with that. Okay. Um, And I know (laughs) I I give my wife uh, a lot of credit. My wife, it's another podcast. I'll tell you about what my wife does. (laughs) She's, she's I on, want that one. <laughs> she's, 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 she's just, what she does is unbelievable. Um, she seeds, by the way, Alzheimer's research. Oh, yes. And yes. that's what she does. So wow. it's venture seeding. Yes. Um, but fire pine, uh, what it is, is that it's a pine cone that on its surface, it looks useless because the seeds are trapped in wax inside the pine cone. So the seeds, by definition, they can't come out. So any passerby that's not knowledgeable would kick this pine cone to a side and say, this is useless. But when there's massive uh, fire, everything else burns. This wax protects the seeds just long enough that the seeds don't burn. And so when you have a forest fire, when you see the new trees, they are seeded by fire pine cones. Mm-hmm. And that is how I invest and that's how I uh, view people is that I don't care – your pedigree, what you say. I look at what people do. Absolutely. I could not agree more. I'm sitting here all excited for my listeners here. I know you can't see this smile on my face, but uh, James has walked right into what I think is at the heart of the issue around the lack of access of capital. Your point about actual risk versus perceived risk is right on the money because I think that when we see difference, 
there is a perception of a lot of risk. But if you just invest a little bit of the time, then you start to deconstruct it, as you say, and realize that maybe not a lot of risk, which which points me to, you know, obviously you've made some great investments over your career as an investor, but I just think the the Ashley Stewart story is is a crown jewel in itself because there's so many lessons, so many playbook points for for us to talk about here. But that's one where the if you look at it, you say the customer is an African American woman who is fiercely brand loyal, who has very few other opportunities for this product, so very limited competition. If you look at it just at the facts, as you said, the actual, that all spells huge opportunity. Oh, and by the way, it is a growing constituency and among entrepreneurs, women of color, the fastest growing segment of entrepreneurs. And if she has her own business, she's clearly going to need some clothes. So I don't care how you cut it. It was a great opportunity. Yet on the face of it, Nobody would touch it. So let's go there. Mm-hmm. And can you talk about Ashley Stewart, how how you happened upon this opportunity, why you decided to, you know, defy all logic and decide that you were going to go for it. Uh, and, you know, let me, yes. I'm so excited about it. So Ashley Stewart, as you said, you know, on the surface of it, people would say, oh, plus size retail for African-American women. But that's not really what it is. And to really unravel this... It is arguably the oldest and largest fashion brand that was directed at black women in this country. Size, irrelevant. And it historically was a very important brand, and it has nothing to do about clothes. It was a place where some of our women could go and just feel great. Mm -hmm. The number one product of Ashley Stewart was what Mickey Taylor would say is fellowship Mm -hmm. and self-esteem. That's Ashley Stewart. And um, unfortunately, again, metaphorically, in 2013, I came to be involved. I saved this company once as a passive investor in 2010. Okay. So that's how you had some familiarity with yes. it. Okay. And it was an investment in a portfolio. I had left the firm. And in 2000, it was not doing well. The history of the business was storied. It just had a lot of difficulty. And the business needed a lot of an owner's love, but also a sophistication of an owner that would put in technology and branding, and it had none for 20 years. Mm -hmm. And it constantly flipped amongst private equity firms that were just trying to not fix the foundation, but paint the house. Mm -hmm. And in 2013, it was about to liquidate. Um, I've been in very tall buildings in New York and Boston. Uh, I can count on zero fingers how many women partners I've had, how many black women partners I've had. And so when Warren Buffett says, invest in what you're familiar with, but what happens if no one who's controlling the money is familiar with Ashley Stewart? What happens if that's the case? And so in 2013, and I said this, I was awarded with the Black Retail Action Group Award last year, and I said this to a room full of predominantly black and Latina women. I said, uh, in Boston, This uh, Asian man face uh, is about as close to a plus-size black woman as you're going to (laughs) get. And they all – they laughed exactly like that. It's a knowing laugh, a sad laugh, and a funny laugh. Uh And um, it bothered me. So in summer 2013, we had a board call. And the company was – I'm an experienced, distressed investor too. And like it had less than a million dollars of liquidity. Wow. 
And so I shut down my life in Boston. I, I volunteered for six months to just stave it away from liquidation, mm -hmm. to get it to an organized bankruptcy. And then my plan was to go home because I thought that if I could get it there, that maybe a strategic buyer would see the value of this, these relationships, the goodwill in the, for 20-something years in the community. Because even though the company was a failure, that's very different from saying that the customer relationships was a failure. Right. The business was a failure, mm -hmm. but not the core. Yeah, the brand had not been destroyed despite the fact yes. that somehow the business had been poorly managed. Correct. I went and volunteered, and for six months, we rewrote a business plan. But I think most importantly, I was in the stores a lot. And uh, I said that this woman reminded me of my mother. And my mother is not black. She's not plus size. Um, she is a... Uh, immigrant from Korea, and, uh, but she reminds me a lot of our core customer. She moved here when she was 25. She had to leave uh, my older brother in Korea because my dad didn't have enough money to, uh, to feed both of them, and they didn't know if it was going to work here. My dad was a resident in pediatrics, and, and so, yeah, so she had to come here. The language barrier was never easy for her, and I could see her just confidence, self-esteem, and she was an educated woman, but just get chipped away a lot. Mm. And there were a lot of incidents uh, growing up where uh, I defended my mother. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm just the same kid, except I have, like, skills now. Yeah. But, okay, <laughs> but, uh, but, the, uh, but the emotion's the same, where it right. hurt me. It's, it, it's hard to describe to someone when you see your mother come into you crying, yep. and you can't fix it. And it hurts because you know that this woman, she's the rock of this family. Mm -hmm. What she's doing is unbelievable. She's an entrepreneur. I'm not an entrepreneur. She's an entrepreneur. And, um, you know, I could see her sometimes when she was very comfortable in a place where she could maybe speak Korean. And, and we grew up, you know, uh, we were like the only non-white family, basically. Um, she was a different person. Like her body language mm -hmm. changed. Her chin was up. I could mm -hmm. see it. There was, a, mm -hmm. there, was a, there was a lilt to her, her step, everything. And when I went to the Ashley stores, I saw the same thing. Mm -hmm. And this was a place where she was not discriminated against for race or size. That's what I fell in love with. Like, my job right now is to make people feel great, yeah. this woman feel great. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, there's not a better thing to do. Yeah. So upon meeting you, we said, wait, Asian man with plus-sized African-American women— that does not add up. So how is he living the problem and understanding it and passionate about it and therefore has an advantage as an investor? So you just unlocked it for, for us and for our investors, how there was the empathy. You, you had lived it, but you had lived it in another way, but the exact same thing. Let's talk about what you had to do when you decided, I'm going to take on this challenge you obviously realized that you couldn't do it alone. You were going to need the staff to stay in place yes. and, and to keep the, the motor running while you needed to do what you needed to do on restructuring the balance sheet around making sure that you could organize, if you will, the income statement, the cash flow statement to give this thing a shot. Yep. So talk a little bit about what you went in and said to the, to the staff. First thing I said to the staff uh, was— Because it was about to close for our listeners. It was, it was yeah. on the last leg, yes. patient on the stretcher. No money available. <laughs> right. No one, no benefit of the doubt. No one, this would have died a quiet death. There would have been no newspaper articles written about it yeah. at all, mm -hmm. right? 
So the first thing I said to the women in the stores leading, I said that you are adults. You'll know this business better than I ever will, and I trust you. And then yeah. I went around. I was on a telephone call, and I went around, and then I met almost all of them and spent time. And I watched and listened. I listened a lot. The second thing I said to the corporate staff, I told everyone why I love this brand, that they were not really... I don't think many of them knew how outlandish a scenario this was that some, like I was doing this. Like this was desperation. Mm-hmm. Um, but I said, this is why I love the brand. This is what it stands for. I can't let you work here anymore if you don't understand it. And I won't let anyone hurt this company again. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to surround this company with people and this woman with people who actually love her. And I said, by the way, I'm going to go sell scrap metal in the warehouse right after I say this to make payroll. That's how bad things are. Wow. I also said to everyone that I'm the least qualified person, at least on paper, to run this business. I mean, your viewers can't see me, but I had never run a retail company before. Mm -hmm. I'm not particularly fashionable Mm -hmm. either. (laughs) No comment. Yeah. (laughs) But I said that there'll be certain things that are, again, that are transcendent. We just got right down to the meat of it. Mm-hmm. Right? And everyone took their armor off. I took my, I, I live my life like mm-hmm. that. I think that the happier people are is when they can just be themselves. And mm-hmm. that's what Ashley Stewart, the whole culture is, is uh, I want her to be able to be herself. Mm-hmm. And by letting her be herself, we're also allowing others in. They're hearing these transcendent messages, just like I thought of my mom. But this is a brand of humanity slash women led by black women. Mm-hmm. And so our e-com business you know, is now 40% Caucasian. Because wow. I kept asking people, why wouldn't other women enjoy mm-hmm. the values of this brand and That's to be, right. part of, be part of the squad, right? That's squad right. goals. Why not come? Mm-hmm. And no one really believed me. Mm-hmm. And we just persisted, yeah. you know? And uh, it's a, it, it feels good, particularly in the climate in which we live. It's, um, we stand for transcendent things. So the learning for an investor uh, that does not have experience investing in this space, investing in the yeah. community, if you were to give them sort of a three-point plan around how do you identify a great investment in in this community, what would the playbook, playbook points be? So if A, how do you identify it? And B, here's what you need to do if you actually want to make this work. There's a lot of things now where the analyses, they're just beyond spreadsheets. And you can do you know Google searches and you can look at the uh, social media patterns, but you really got to go in. Speak yes. to real people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, yeah. get out of the zeros and ones. Yeah, because that knowledge is there's no arbitrage in that knowledge at in all. In the zeros and ones, None. that's right. Everyone has it, right? Now, right. The arbitrage is what you get elbow to elbow, uh, looking at somebody yeah. in the eye. The same way, if you think about it, I, I'm a, as you know a capital markets banker by training, and that's one of the reasons I tell CEOs that you do the roadshow, the IPO roadshow, because a prospectus gives you all the numbers. But the large institutional investors want to look at you to yes. see if you understand the game, and the game is to underpromise and overdeliver on your first announcement after you become a public company. Do you understand that, and will you deliver that? And it's about looking looking yes. at you in the eyes. So that's what you're saying that you need to do. Right. Is there anything that you would change, knowing what you know now, is there anything you would change bringing this company out of bankruptcy? No. How many other businesses of this scale and influence organically are in this country? There mm-hmm. are none. Mm-hmm. There are very few brands that came out of this community that have the physical infrastructure. We control the relationship with the customers. There's no wholesale. Yeah. We touch her directly at every point, whether it's the concerts we're throwing, stores, e-com. It's, it's our hand. Mm-hmm. And 
there's value to that. Yes, no question. And and I would argue uh, other brands that can be created, especially now that you have the playbook of understanding, yes. because what you've said, it's not about the demographic of woman uh, of the woman. It might have come from one demographic, but it the it transcends. Uh, you know, all issues as they relate to women. Uh, you have tapped into uh, the woman's need to to be seen, uh, to feel good, uh, to have her esteem reaffirmed. Uh, and it doesn't matter that you don't look like her. You mm. understood because you listened. And you, a lot of the things that you said, James, uh, hits on some of the tenets that I think uh, exemplify great leadership. Uh, a great leader listens. Uh, a great leader executes. They don't just speak. Um, they can articulate a vision. They show the vulnerability. Um, and all of those things have come into play as to who you are, you know, as an investor. Let me ask you a question. How does who you are as an investor and an entrepreneur play into who you are as a social activist? Because I would argue that you're you're already creating, but you're on the precipice of really big change if you think about what's happening in this country with women. My job is to use this company as a platform where I'm giving a lot of women a voice and uh, a reason to be proud of this business as a metaphor. Mm-hmm. And then the other thing that uh, I'm very proud of is the college tour. I mean, I think that you know that I teach at Duke. It's uh, I wrote a class that somehow put a smorgasbord together of everything I've learned in a way that teaches them accounting, finance theory, all this stuff in an ethics class. It's now required by every Duke Law and Entrepreneurship grad. I'm most proud that we're teaching it to a lot of predominantly black, historically black, and all women's schools. And these are groups that generally don't control capital. Mm -hmm. And I'm teaching them not how to balance a checkbook, but it's more the concepts of leverage, Mm -hmm. like money, life, operating, risk return. What does this mean? It's, And then we we formulated and we it, they learn accounting and finance theory in a deconstructed way, in a way that's very accessible. And mm-hmm. they're like, I got and it. applicable. And applicable mm-hmm. to their mm-hmm. own life. And so we are using this platform to educate um, a whole new generation of Ashley Stewart's. Yeah. And a lot of this came from the fact that some of my long-term employees had said to me, we wish we had met you 30 years ago. Ah. And I said to them, well... I'm going to do that. I'm going to meet you 30 years ago. Yeah. And so I'm going to our kids. Yeah. And this, we offer a lot of scholarships and a lot of our partners now, Salesforce, Facebook, they're giving us money back mm-hmm. to award scholarships to the children of our customer base. Yes. Okay, James, let's go to uh, something that we started as a little bit of a tradition on access and opportunity. It's called the lightning round. And it's a fun way for our listeners to get an opportunity to know you as a person, although I think we've, we probably have done that in this conversation. So we'll ask you questions, rapid fire. You answer in three <laughs> words or fewer. So you ready? Ready. Okay. Favorite thing about New Jersey? Ashley Stewart's base there. Okay. Favorite book or magazine? The old Aesop's Fable my dad bought me when I was six. City or the countryside? City with beach. <laughs> Where is that? <laughs> okay. uh, favorite TV show? I just binge watched The Haunting of Hill House. Oh, okay. Very good. Okay. Favorite fun fact? My senior year roommate in college and one of my best friends there was Matt Damon. He wrote Goodwill Hunting our senior yeah. year. And so if you think about my life, this has been kind of my Goodwill Hunting the last six years. Okay. Your next opportunity that you're most excited about? I think I'm most excited about the documentary that Soul that O'Brien's doing on our Ashley Stewart story. Coffee or tea? Coffee. Texting or talking? Always talking. Last thing you downloaded? 
Cindy Lauper all through the night. Favorite vacation destination? We spent a lot of time on Figure Eight Island, North Carolina. If you had a talk show, who would you want to be your first guest? It'd be my dad and mom when they were 26, 27, and I would tell them that uh, to stress less and that things would be okay. What's one word that you'd like to use to describe your legacy? Generous. Okay. Well, James, thank you very much for giving us an opportunity to get to know you and to hear your story. Thank you all for listening. That's it for this season of Access and Opportunity. Happy New Year to you all. We'll be back in 2019 with season three, where we'll be back with more conversations about access and opportunity.